And today I want to, we've been focusing a lot on verses 1 through 11. Let me read verses 12 through 27, even though today we're going to give a bird's eye view going over the whole chapter. Blessed is the man who endures temptation, for when he has been approved, he will receive the crown of life which the Lord has promised to those who love him. Let no one say when he is tempted, I am tempted by God, for God cannot be tempted by evil, nor does he himself tempt anyone. But each one is tempted when he is drawn away by his own desires and enticed. Then, when desire has conceived, gives birth to sin, and sin, when it is full grown, brings forth death. Do not be deceived, my beloved brethren. Every good gift and every perfect gift is from above and comes down from the Father of lights, with whom there is no variation or shadow of turning. Of his own will he brought us forth by the word of truth, that we might be a kind of firstfruits for his creatures. So then, my beloved brethren, let every man be swift to hear, slow to speak, slow to wrath, for the wrath of man does not produce the righteousness of God. Therefore, lay aside all filthiness and overflow of wickedness, and receive with meekness the implanted word which is able to save your souls. But be doers of the word, and not hearers only, deceiving your own selves. For if anyone is a hearer of the word and not a doer, he is like a man observing his natural face in a mirror. For he observes himself, goes away, and immediately forgets what kind of man he was. But he who looks into the perfect law of liberty and continues in it, and is not a forgetful hearer, but a doer of the work, this one will be blessed in what he does. If anyone among you thinks he is religious and does not bridle his tongue but deceives his own heart, this one's religion is useless. Pure and undefiled religion before God and the Father is this, to visit orphans and widows in their trouble and to keep oneself unspotted from the world. Amen. Father God, we come before you uh, desiring to worship and obey you as we hear your word, and I pray that uh, you would indeed sanctify us by your truth, enable me to faithfully communicate, and Father, help us to have hearing ears. In Jesus' name, amen. You may be seated. Uh, hopefully you've all got outlines because we're going to be whizzing through a pile of material and that'll help, I think, to organize your thoughts. But last week we went through the first two points under Roman numeral three, uh, developing a worldview and uh, developing the three facets of faith. And I consider those two points to be probably the most important of any of the points we're going to be looking uh, through today. In fact, everything else really flows either out of worldview or it flows out of faith. And so if you did not hear last week's sermon, I would encourage you to get a tape because that really sets the context for what we're going to uh, do today. Today we're just giving a broad overview so you can see all of the different issues that are involved in overcoming uh, temptation. And point C uh, is fairly obvious and yet we miss it many times. Point C says we must not deliberately step into trials slash temptations. Now the reason I say trials slash temptations is because it's the same Greek word, perazzo, that's translated either way. The same thing that God has intended as a trial, Satan can use as a temptation. Uh, for example, uh, outward pressures and uh, um, persecutions can cause one believer to grow like crazy in God's grace and God designed it, you know, to mature him, while another Christian, because of his failure to respond as he ought, uh, he is overcome by that and, and uh, he falls into sin. He maybe compromises his faith. And uh, 
the, the difference is that Satan took something that God was using and he caused it to be a temptation. We looked at that in terms of how temptations work. And, and so uh, verse 2 says, even though you know, so, some of these things can cause Christians to, glo to, gr uh, to grow, and even though they can be the basis of joy, we looked at that, he says, my brother, count it all joy when you fall into, not when you jump into, when you fall into various trials. Uh, the Puritan writer Thomas Manton said, there is a great deal of difference between falling into temptation and running into temptation. The falling into a temptation shall work for good, not the running into it. And uh, what was it? Maybe three weeks ago, I gave the illustration in terms of this of the early... Um, many early Christians who were just throwing themselves on the government officials to get martyred, you know, and these guys were being tortured for their faith. And we saw, you know, that's really a foolish thing to do, to just deliberately put yourself into the trial. But, you know, it is just as foolish for us to deliberately expose ourselves to Satan's attacks and his temptations. It's just as foolish to deliberately expose ourselves to needless trials that could end up being uh, temptations in, in our lives, temptations to compromise. Out in Ethiopia, my dad was watching a hawk one time who had swooped down and picked up a snake from the ground and took it way up high and was playing with it just like a cat with a, a mouse and would drop the snake and then would swoop down and grab it and then drop it again and grab it. But at one point, it fell to the ground like a stone. My dad went over there to look and the snake had bitten managed to get through the feathers and had bitten this, uh, this bird uh, because it had been fooling around with it, playing around with it. And that's the way I think it many times is with sin in our lives. We try to see how close to the edge we can get and then we're surprised when we fall down the embankment, you know. We try to fool around with the snake of sin and then we wonder, oh, I didn't want to sin, you know, I was just getting close. <laughs> and uh, so he says, don't get yourself into the position where you could easily fall. And if you look on the back of your worship notes, the green uh, page, I like Charles Spurgeon's quote on the back where he says, you cannot help birds flying over your heads in the air, but do not let them alight and build their nest in your hair. Temptations will come, but do not entertain them. Drive them away. And I can only say amen. But you see, so many times we Christians, just we like to see how close we can get without sinning. My dad's philosophy was always, see how far away from sin you can get, not how close you can get and still not sin. Um, look at the third quote on your back of the notes there. Matthew Henry says, Those that would be kept from harm must keep out of harm's way. Such tinder there is. Tinder is the thing that you light fires with. It just is very flammable. Such tinder there is in the corrupt nature that it is madness upon any pretense whatsoever to come near the sparks. If we thrust ourselves into temptation, we mocked God when we prayed, lead us not into temptation. Okay, that one. Fourth key is to recognize that your faith is constantly being tested. It's being tested by Satan to see if you've got any weak holes that he can take advantage of. And if you don't, then, you know, he'll leave you alone for a while and then he'll come back and test some more. But ultimately, I think we need to recognize that God is the one who has allowed Satan like he allowed Job to, te I mean, Satan to test Job. God allows Satan to bring trials into our lives to test our mettle in battle and to test us in various ways. And when we need refinement, we go back to the master, uh, you know, fencing master, you know, the one who teaches us. 
and we get more fencing lessons and how we can grow. And then he puts us out and we're tested in, in battle uh, once again. But look at verse 3. It says, knowing that the testing of your faith, just that phrase right there, the testing of your faith, we need to see the trials that are brought into our lives as being tests of our character to see if the Lord can give us more freedoms, more blessings, more responsibilities that he can trust us with. And uh, let me outline some of the integrity checks that God gives. The first and the most obvious one is one that comes straight from Satan, but God allows it. And that is he allows us to be tempted in terms of our character, our moral character. And you could probably look back on your past week and you can probably see times where you were tested. You know, you were given the opportunity to take a second glance at something that was alluring or to laugh at a dirty joke or to lie, to cover your tracks. And you passed that test. You did the right thing, but you could feel, you know, there was a, a strong temptation there. And how you reacted to that test will make all the difference as to whether the Lord can now trust you with more freedoms, more responsibilities, uh, or whether he has to continue to withhold them from you. Another integrity check as when you've done something that requires restitution. Uh, perhaps you parked in a parking lot a little bit too close to the car beside you, and when you opened up your door, you oh, just scratched a whole bunch of paint off the other uh, car's uh, side. But nobody's around to see. You know, Satan may have noticed. God for sure notices. And what you did, did you give restitution? Did you put a note, you know, on the windshield and say, sorry, I scraped your car, here's my insurance number? Or did you just pass on? That test, again, is something where God is evaluating your character. Where are you in, in the development process? Can I trust you with the next stage of ministry? Can I trust you with more? Or do I have to take what I've already given uh, to you? Uh, he might worry that we're going to misuse it. The loyalty test tests your views of authority. Now, your flesh may give every reason in the world why you have a right to undermine the authority of your boss or of your parents or of the pastor or somebody else, and you may be able to convince a number of other friends to their satisfaction that you've got a right, but you need to ask, what does God think about this? What's his reaction? Because he's the one who's setting up providence before you, and you're either going forward or you're going backward depending on how you respond, whether you pass or you fail, these checks, these tests. Another integrity check is a values chest, test to see how committed you are to your philosophy of life, your philosophy of ministry. Now, if you've never developed a philosophy of ministry, you've not even got to the stage of being able to be tested yet. But over the past four years, I've had many, many checks, many, many tests to see whether I really was holding to the values that God was wanting, uh, I believe, this congregation to have. I've been tested many times. Now, there's the persecution test that tests your trust, your steadfastness, your perseverance in the, in the face of opposition. There's the vision test that checks your commitment to God's vision that he has placed upon your heart for your family, your ministry that uh, you are engaged in. And are you going to follow through in what God has been calling you to, whether it's in business or elsewhere, are you going to follow through even when there's lack of money, when other people don't see it the way you see it? Uh, when uh, they don't get as enthusiastic about it as you do. If it's something that God has placed within your heart, sometimes these tests say, am I going to trust God and am I going to carry through? Finally, there's the leadership test that checks your views on accountability and servanthood. Will you use your leadership to serve or to be served? 
Are you going to be an accountable leader or an unaccountable one? Now, it made a big difference in my life when it was even pointed out to me there was such a thing as integrity checks that the Lord providentially allows into our lives. And it made a big difference when I went into every day anticipating that there was going to be some integrity checks and I passed far more of them after that because now I was anticipating, I was not taken off guard, I was not discouraged when those things came because I knew they were for my good. And so you might be dissing me on this one, say I, it's not really that important. But really, I, I want you to consider the, the whole aspect of every day saying, Lord, I want to pass whatever integrity checks you are bringing into my life. Help me to anticipate them and to be ready to respond as I ought. And I think you'll grow in maturity uh, 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 very quickly. Point E, commit yourself for the long haul. Verse 4 says, But let patience have its perfect work, that you may be perfect and complete, lacking nothing. Boy, that's a long haul. But he's saying, don't give up. And many times as you fall down on the ground, get up. I, I remember as a teenager being so discouraged. Oh, uh, there's one particular sin, just kept falling and falling. And I just finally thought, there's no point in even going on, just throwing the towel. And then as soon as I said I was going to throw in the towel, of course, the Spirit wouldn't let me. <laughs> you know, it's like, it was so frustrating. I could not get going. But he says, you've got to have the attitude, I'm in this for the long haul. I'm going to see it through. Uh, about three months ago, I put a poem on the back of your worship notes by Edgar Guest called See It Through. And I wish more Christians had this attitude. He said, when you're up against the trouble, meet it squarely, face to face. Lift your chin and set your shoulders. Plant your feet and take a brace. When it's vain to try to dodge it, do the best that you can do. You may fail, but you may conquer. See it through. Black may be the clouds about you, and your future may seem grim, but don't let your nerve deserve you, desert you. Keep yourself in fighting trim. If the worst is bound to happen, spite of all that you can do, running it from it will not save you. See it through. And that's what James is saying. Don't give yourself an out. You need to have a persevering faith and sanctification that says, I am determined to keep after this and keep after this until I find sanctification by God's grace. So, I've given you a poem. We don't have three points, but at least I have uh, the poem part of the sermon right. It's the first poem I've given probably in a year. Point F. Uh, we've already looked at this in the past, so I'm not going to develop it this morning. I'm just going to briefly say we must learn to say no to the present orientation of our fleshly desires and to say yes to the future orientation of the godly mind. And I harp on this future orientation because it really is so critical. He calls us to have patience. Let patience have its perfect work. And what patience is, is that it's anticipating something in the future that's worth the wait. That's what patience is. It's anticipating something in the future. It's not just drudgerously grinning and bearing. No, it's anticipating something in the future that is worth the wait. And we must, we must have deferred gratification of our desires now so that we can have far, far better in the, in the future. Without future orientation, you are not going to be successful in sanctification. And I've also dealt with points G and H, so we'll skip over those. Uh, make sure your uh, goal is holiness, not comfort. Ask God for wisdom. Let's pick up on point I. Don't hedge your bets. Or if you want a different analogy, make sure you burn your bridges, okay, when it comes to sin. Um, verses 6 through 8. But let him ask in faith with no doubting, for he who doubts is like a wave of the sea driven and tossed by the wind. For let not that man suppose he will receive anything from the Lord. He is a double-minded man, unstable in all his ways. Now, 
We, we applied that already in the past in terms of faith, and I think that's a primary application. But there is another way in which we can be double-minded, and that is constantly leaving options when it comes to sin. In other words, we're not determined. This is the one and the only way that we can do it. Another way of saying this is when you flee from temptation, don't leave a forwarding address, okay? Um, temptation usually comes through a door that's been deliberately left open. So burn your bridges, or to use a picture from Cortez, Hernandez Cortez, burn your ships. Remember when he came to uh, the New World, he wanted to conquer the whole Aztec Empire. He wanted to uh, get all of the gold that was there, but he wasn't sure how committed the people and his boats were. So when they were all on the land, he had every ship burnt. Hey, they couldn't go back. They couldn't swim back to England, okay? And so they were committed. There was only one course before them. It was either conquer or die. And that's the attitude that we need to have. I am not going back. Sin is not an option. I am going to conquer or die. I'm going forward. And so don't hedge your bets. Point J uh, is an issue of faith. Again, we saw all of these either flow from worldview or the faith uh, points. No matter how difficult your circumstances may be, give, give thanks to God for them. Glory in them. Uh, rejoice in what God has placed you in. And if you do that, um, you're going to have the kind of contentment that's going to keep Satan's lures from having any attraction to you whatsoever. When you have contentment, it weakens uh, the power of Satan's temptations. And so if you look at verses 9 through 11, it says, Let the bro lowly brother glory in his exaltation, but the rich in his humiliation, because as a flower of the field he will pass away. For no sooner has the sun risen with a burning heat than it withers the grass, its fl fl flower falls and its beautiful appearance perishes. So the rich man also will fade away in his pursuits. Now, we've, we've sucked a whole bunch of other things from that passage before. I just want to look at that one word, glory. We need to learn to glory in the things that God has given to us providentially, whether it's poverty or whether it's riches. We just need to say, Lord, I am satisfied with the state that you have given to me. Um, satisfaction with God's hand or contentment with God's hand uh, I think is a key, key element in not allowing Satan's temptations to be able to captivate our hearts. Paul learned, he said, both to abound and to suffer lack. He learned in both state to be content. And we need to be at that place as well. Ephesians 5 verse 20, giving thanks always for all things. That's glorying for all things. It's the ability, every time you're tempted to be discontented, you know, maybe Satan is dangling a lure before you and you're coveting something that your neighbor has, immediately stop that and say, Lord, forgive me for having coveted that. I glory in the fact you have given to me all things that pertain to life and godliness. You've given me so many blessings and I don't want to ignore those blessings and you just spend the time of thanksgiving and glorying and that you're going to find immediately that uh, the pull of that allurement beginning to fade from your heart. And I cannot get into the details of each one of these points because I got probably a paper on each one of these. How do you gain contentment? Okay, he doesn't tell us. Later on in the book, he gives some hints. Uh, we've got uh, many other scriptures, but what we're talking about here is simply the pattern. What are the things that need to be in place if we're to be strong in overcoming uh, temptation? Okay, um, this leads logically then into verse 12, and I should point out there is a logical development through this chapter. 
Uh, we need to remind ourselves that enduring is worthwhile. He says, blessed. Why can we glory? Because we recognize by faith we are blessed beyond measure. Blessed is the man who endures temptation. Now, our flesh wants us to think the opposite. It wants us to think that we're going to be blessed, we're going to be happy if we give in to the temptation, we're going to be miserable if we do the other. And God says, no, you're going to be long-term miserable Again, the future-mindedness helps here. But you're going to be long-term miserable if you give in to the temptation. But you're going to be incredibly blessed and satisfied in the Lord if you endure and if you get, uh, if you get uh, through that. <coughs> and uh, we dealt with that quite adequately before, so I think I'll move on. Now, when we begin to do all of this, the next step is logical as well. We do not blame our circumstances. If we've developed contentment and uh, we uh, remind ourselves that enduring is worthwhile, uh, we're not going to be blaming anybody and everybody for why we're failing. Uh, and it, ultimately, we saw before that, that uh, Adam and Eve were ultimately blaming God for their sins. The woman you gave me, she gave me to eat. It wasn't my fault, Lord. And she blames Satan, the serpent. And uh, poor serpent, he didn't have much of anybody to blame, did he? Um, but he says, let no one say when he is tempted, I am tempted of God, for God cannot be tempted with evil, neither tempts he any man. But each one is drawn away by his own desires and enticed. And so we dealt with that uh, adequately as well. And again, I'm repeating these so you can have them. You can see the, the flow, the logic of the chapter. Verses 19 through 20 starts with a therefore indicates again that we, when we begin to change our focus from being on ourselves uh, to having a servant's heart, we're not going to be as likely to get bent out of shape uh, when uh, bad things happen to us. Um, he says, So then, my beloved brethren, or therefore, my beloved brethren, let every man be swift to hear, slow to speak, slow to wrath, for the wrath of man does not produce the righteousness of God. Why do we tend to get ticked off with other people? Because we want to change them. And they're not changing. Uh, God's the change agent. He's the one who can successfully change other people's hearts. But when we begin to get the attitude, it doesn't matter how bad the others are, how do I change myself so that I respond in a way that gains the victory? I respond in a way that gives God uh, the glory. I can think of many times at one job that I had where I came home, I was just steamed at the lies and the... The, the terrible things that my boss had, had done to me, and I felt I could justify, because it was downright mean, I could justify my anger. This was righteous anger, right? Over what was done. It was just pure sin, what the other person had done, actually trying to make me so miserable that I would leave uh, the job. But I was not uh, accomplishing any of the righteousness of God. I wasn't changing my boss, wasn't changing the situation, and I was being overcome by evil. Romans 12, he says, do not be overcome by evil, but overcome evil with good. And I was becoming downright miserable. And I finally came to the state where I, I, I just gave it all to the Lord. I said, I read the, the scripture that says, you are not your own, for you have been bought with a price. And so I wrote down all of the rights, and it was a long list of rights that had been trampled upon by my boss. And I says, Lord, you have purchased me. You've purchased my rights. They don't belong to me anyway. And if you want them taken away, so be it. And uh, if... 
Uh, you want to protect them, so be it. I know you can protect my rights a whole lot better than I can. And I just gave them to the Lord. And it was like a thousand pounds was taken off my back because I realized this is now in God's department. I do not want to respond, I told the Lord, as if a right has been taken away. Responsibility, yes. Because now, a responsibility, I'm focused on the Lord rather than being a personal attack. And uh, it, it hugely helped to the point where we actually became friends because I just kept overcoming evil with good, building up, praising, doing everything I could. And um, there were times where I wanted to pull back my rights again and, and get upset and get angry. But it, it was a very, very helpful thing in my own sanctification. Now, once we've gotten our attitudes straightened out, we're in a good position to deal with outward actions. And point N deals with putting off bad habits. Now, when a, a coach is teaching any sport, usually there are some bad habits that he has to help these people to unlearn, right? And it takes a while for that to happen. And the th next three steps in the outline all have to be in place for this to be effective. And so just quickly take a look. Verses 21, I'll just outline the three steps. He says, first of all, you've got to stop the sin. You've got to put off something, and then you'll have to put on something. But the put off is, therefore, lay aside all filthiness and overflow of wickedness. And Oh, here's the next step. You've got to get instruction from the coach. So he's told you, this is the wrong thing to do. He's writing on the board, here's the right things to do. Receive with meekness the implanted word, which is able to save your soul. Then you replace it with the practice of righteousness. You're putting on something, but be doers in the word, not hearers only, uh, deceiving your own selves. And um, you need all three steps. You cannot put off an old habit until you've put on a new habit because the old one just keeps, seems to keep getting sucked in. You can't put on a new one until you're dealing with the old. Both have to be done, and you've got to have that meditation step in the middle. But let me just describe uh, how habits work. Scripture says that sin dwells in our members. Now, our members are meat and bones, okay? How in the world can sin dwell in our members? That's something that's puzzled many people because we don't have a metaphysical view of sin. Sin is an action of a person. So how in the world can it dwell in our members? Well, very easily, it's when sin becomes a habit that it dwells in your members. Any habit that you have has gone beyond the conscious deliberation side of, uh, of your thinking, and it becomes an automatic function. You just automatically react, you know, without, it just bypasses, you know, the processes of, of thinking. So you can, you can tie your shoelaces, button your, uh, your shirt, and you probably do it in all the same order while you're talking to somebody else, not even thinking about buttoning of your shirt. You can drive, you can do all kinds of things that are very automatic, and that's the way it is with sin. You have become so habituated to responding to your stim the things that come to you, responding in a certain way that it's become a habit so that all that other person has to do is look at you in that certain way and it just ticks you off. All you have to have that other person to do is uh, they wear the certain perfume and it associates with something in the past and it causes you to stumble. It, it can be any number of things, and you say, okay, here's all of these things. I'm a victim of my circumstances. And he says, no. What's happened is because of your bad actions and repeated sins, it's finally become so ingrained in your system, it's become a habit, it's part of your nervous system. And to get rid of that, you've got to rehabituate a new habit. 
You're dehabituating the old, you're taking off the old habit, you're putting on the new. And so that's what these three points are talking about. We cannot operate in a vacuum. You try to put it off, it'll get sucked right back in. And how many people struggle and struggle, whether it's with smoking or any other kind of a thing, or even, you know, who was the, I think mom was telling me the other day of, of uh, this preacher who used to have this habit of just twirling his button while he was preaching and it was just a nervous habit and his wife just kept telling him, you know, it just looks terrible. You're always twirling that thing. It's a nervous habit. And he wouldn't, uh, he just wouldn't quit. So one day she chopped off that button and he got up there. There wasn't any button and he couldn't preach. <laughs> he, he just, it was so discombobulating because he was used to preaching with touching that thing. And so it's not something that happens overnight. It's something, a habit takes a while to put off and you're putting on uh, the new habit. So let's go through these points and see if we can't uh, see how this works. First of all, you deliberately think, okay, I, I need to stop doing this. Then verse, uh, point O, verse 21 says, and receive with meekness the implanted word which is able to save your souls. Uh, implanted desires, they can't immediately be turned off, but you can implant something else. You can implant the Word of God which begins to grow and spread and choke out the other sinful desires over a period of time that are warring against the soul. And let me tell you something. The Word of God is powerful. It is sharper than any two-edged sword. It's the thing that the Spirit uses to sanctify us. He says, sanctify them through your truth. Your Word is truth. And if you do not have a systematic program of memorizing the Scripture, you are short-circuiting the process of sanctification. You can't be sanctified if you're not memorizing Scripture. And so every one of you ought to have every week Scriptures you are, being mem you are memorizing. You're implanting them into your heart to have that sanctifying power so that the implanted desires will be uprooted and torn out. And then, of course, it goes then to the changing of behavior. So point B, P talks about putting on the new habit or rehabituation. Be doers of the word, not hearers only, deceiving your own self. So here's the coach. He's drawing on the blackboard all of the different moves you need to be making. You're sticking that in your head. You're memorizing those football calls or the different moves if you're uh, uh, you know, on the balance beam or whatever it is. But until you actually go out there and do it, it's not going to become a new habit. It's not enough to store it in your head. You have to practice it. You have to be involved in, in the action. Uh, I remember when I was younger, wanting to witness, and I was just scared to death. I was such a shy person. Uh, didn't care to be in front of people or talking with other people. And I just asked the Lord, said, Lord, I'd be happy to witness if you just take away my fear. And uh, he didn't take away the fear. And so I'd lay claim to the promise in Philippians chapter 4. Lord, take away this fear. You've promised that you will give me that peace that passes all understanding, that guards your hearts and minds in Christ Jesus. And I didn't have any taking away of the fear. Well, the problem was, as I was bypassing the process that Philippians talks about. He says, in order to have that peace that passes all understanding, you need to do three things in that context. First of all, you need to pray rightly. Not a self-centered prayer. He says we need to be uh, praying, yes, offering up to the Lord, but with supplications. What's that? That's praying on behalf of other people and with thanksgivings. In other words, your whole focus of your prayer life is being taken away from a, a self-directed focus into another directed focus. That helps with the fear. Secondly, so you pray rightly, you need to think rightly. He says stop meditating on all of the negative things and begin meditating on the positive things. 
those things which are good and lovely and of good report, you know, all that kind of stuff. And then you need to act rightly. He says, the things which you have seen and heard, no, heard and seen and whatever in me, these do, and the God of peace will be with you. All the way through, it's this peace of God that guards your hearts and minds. But if you're not praying rightly, act, uh, thinking rightly and acting rightly, it's not going to happen. So what happened? I began to do exactly that. I began to pray for the people who needed to be witnessed for, supplications. I began to thank God that he can use even my feebleness. Thank him for his power. And then I began to meditate, not on everything that could go wrong with this, uh, this witnessing thing. Just say, Lord, if something goes wrong, that's great for my pride because my pride needs to be crucified. And you can use even the silliest, idiotic witnessing that I give. And then thirdly, I began to act. I went out and I began to witness. And lo and behold, God's peace came through. It came through. And see, we short-circuit God's promises. We take them out of context and we fail to, uh, we fail to implement them. And so we need to be doers. And then he goes on to say that we need to keep doing it and keep doing it until it becomes a habit. It needs to become a practice. And usually for any habit, anything to become a habit where you're comfortable with doing it, it takes six weeks of daily practice before it becomes a, a habit. And so he goes on to say... <clears throat> In uh, verses 23 through 25, For if anyone is a hearer of the word, not a doer, he is like a man observing his natural face in a mirror. For he observes himself, goes away, and immediately forgets what kind of man uh, he was. And it's so easy to forget. Uh, you know, the, the coach, God tells us we need to pray. And so we try a couple of times, and then we forget about it. And so it never becomes a habit in our lives. You know, when a coach is trying to get a person to break some habit and put on a new habit of a tennis, if he only tries it two or three times, he's never going to be comfortable enough with this new one where in the heat of the battle, he's not going to immediately, you know, fall back on his old patterns. It's got to become a habit so that in, even in the heat, he doesn't even resort to the old one. It's just the most natural thing to resort uh, to the first one. So he goes on, he says, but he who looks into the perfect law of liberty and continues in it and is not a forgetful hearer, but a doer of the work, this one will be blessed in what he does. So you see that? It's, it's a continuation. It's worth the regular practice. Hebrews 5.13 says, for everyone who partakes only of milk is, is not accustomed to the word of righteousness, for he is a babe. But solid food is for the mature who, because of practice, have their senses trained to discern between good and evil. Okay, that's habituation. You're becoming accustomed to it. You're practicing. You're being trained. And then finally, we come to point R, which says we need to make the soil of our lives totally inhospitable to sin. Um, <clears throat> we need to poison out the weeds, you know, that want to grow in, in, in uh, our lives and make sure we're not fertilizing them. And there's two sins that he pulls out that are key in, 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 in preventing sanctification and if we remove them and making it easier to be sanctified. The first is pride and the second is selfishness. How do you kill pride? Well, there's a number of ways, but uh, he gives us a, a couple of ideas. He says, make yourself open and vulnerable and thus less prone to self-deception. Now, that's scary because if you make yourself vulnerable and open and you let people know you have weaknesses and that you have sins, somebody could take advantage of that. Somebody could really hurt you through that. 
But you need to take the attitude, I want my pride to be hurt because that pride is going to be destructive to my sanctification. So you make yourself open and vulnerable. Like in verses 19 through 20, you start listening to the reproofs instead of always seeing what's wrong in other people's lives. You want to listen to what is uh, wrong in your own life and be willing to change. Uh, I had a professor at Westminster Seminary who this was his habit of life. It didn't matter how far off the criticism came uh, to him. It could just be way off the mark. He always listened for what even kernel of truth was in that criticism. Even if maybe he had communicated wrong and they had totally misunderstood, he said, I want to make sure I communicate better in the future. But he always tried to learn from the criticism rather than immediately say, that's not true, you know, and justifying himself. Now that will crucify pride. That kind of an attitude will. And James has a lot more to say about uh, taming the tongue, but... Um, uh, chapter 3, but verse 26 says, If anyone among you thinks he is religious and does not bridle his tongue but deceives his own heart, this one's religion is useless. He's saying, <clears throat> don't even talk. Don't talk about yourself. But that's exactly what pride wants to do. It's constantly wanting to talk about self. Biblical communication is, is um, uh, other-centered. Humanistic communication is me-centered humanistic-centered. Sort of like the cartoon about Garfield. Garfield's uh, talking the head off of his uh, stuffed teddy bear, and he's saying, and then about April of 81, or was it 82, my voice changed, and I started singing the baritone part, and in the second caption, he says, gee, Pookie, I'm tired of talking about me. You talk about me for a while. <laughs> and that's the way pride is. And so he's saying, whether it's in your tongue, and there's all kinds of other ways that he could have given as illustrations as to how to crucify that pride. But James 3.2 says, For we all stumble in many things. If anyone does not stumble in word, he is a mature man, able also to bridle the whole body. Wow. He's saying if you can control your tongue where it's not unleashed for your pride and your selfishness, you can control your whole body. He says that's the kind of power that the tongue has, both for good and for evil. Okay, so the first one that you want to poison out and make inhospitable, you don't want to give any fertilizer for pride. But secondly, you don't want to give any fertilizer for selfishness because selfishness leads to sin as well. The first uh, sin in this universe was pride, and it led to every other sin in the universe. But selfishness was very close twin to it. And uh, so in here, he gives one example of how we can kill off uh, selfishness, and that's in verse uh, 27. He says, Pure and undefiled religion before God and the Father is this, to visit orphans and widows in their trouble and to keep oneself unspotted from the world. Now, that's the kind of ministry that you're not going to get strokes from. In fact, well, you might get strokes, but the wrong kind. I mean, people bite you when you're trying to help them. And... Uh, and a lot of people don't notice this kind of thing. Usually people want to be in the limelight. They want to have something that's going to stroke the eager or, or make them uh, feel like they're going to be served as well. I'm going to extend hospitality to this person because I want him to be my friend. Or I want him, you know, maybe to invite me to his house. And Christ says, no, invite people who will never invite you back. Why? Because you're trying to kill selfishness. You're trying to minister as God would have us minister. And so find jobs and ministries that take away the selfish principle. And I um, guess that's it. I've, I've really covered a pile of material, but I wanted you to see in a big scope that there's, that there's quite a few principles in James chapter 1. And if we just got lost in chopping down one tree, we might fail to see the connection through the whole. 
And it's my prayer, as you lay hold of these, as you meditate upon these, as you begin to implement them, that the Lord, you'd see the Lord's uh, grace coming through and tremendous victories happening in your life. Let's pray. Thank you, Father, for the practicality of your word. And uh, uh, because of time considerations, Lord, each of these points we've not been able to amplify, but I pray that there would be enough here that the people could run with it and begin to see, Father, that there are specific things that we can do that perhaps have been missing. And uh, maybe it's just one or two of these points that's been missing from a person's life and can answer why they have not had success. I pray that you would uh, give each and every one of these such uh, growth from glory to glory, from faith to faith, from grace to grace, uh, that uh, they would look back and uh, just rejoice at the incredible progress that they have made. And I pray it in Jesus' name. Amen.